0: Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of the Glasshouse, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glasshouse is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay my respects to elders past and present and I also acknowledge resistance against settler colonialism across the world and pledge my solidarity with people in Palestine fighting for liberation. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, in just under 10 minutes, I'll be joined by acclaimed local author Alice Pung to speak about her new book called 100 Days. It does follow the story of 16-year-old Karuna, who has fallen pregnant, and it follows the story of her and her mum as they figure out how to navigate this new challenge. It is out through black ink, Later on in the show, I'll be joined by local poet and editor, Eleanor Gomez, to speak about her second full-length poetry collection, Admit to the Joyous Passion of Revolt. That one is out through Puncher and Watman. I hope you can stay with me for the next hour. When 16-year-old Karuna falls pregnant, her mother, incensed and ashamed, holds her up in their flat for 100, ta- for 100 days to keep her safe from the outside world so she can't get into any more trouble. And while it's stuck inside, Karuna wrestles for power and control as her new baby grows inside her. And as the due date draws closer, Karuna and her mum grapple with how they will raise this baby and who will get to raise her. 100 Days is the new novel by local writer Alice Pung. Alice thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
1: Oh thanks for having me Beth. Uh, It's
0: always such a pleasure to chat to you about your work. Alice 100 Days is you know it's set in the commission flats in the western suburbs set in the 80s follows the story of 16 year old Karuna and her mother as they kind of navigate Karuna's pregnancy. Can you tell me a bit about your decision to set the book here?
1: Oh, to set it in the western suburbs? Yeah. Yeah, um, I grew up in the western suburbs. I grew up in a suburb called Braybrook, and I had quite a few relatives who lived in the housing commission flats um, in Flemington and Kensington, just around that area. Mm. And I thought of setting the book in the 1980s because, uh, you know, we didn't have the internet then, and if you got yourself knocked up, Uh, there there was no options, you had no idea what to do, you wouldn't know how to Uh, get information, and if you were completely controlled by a parent, you know, financially, uh, everything else, you would have no means of catching a bus to go to the local chemist to get a pregnancy test, even. Mm -hmm. So I set it up in the Housing Commission flats because that's one of the most confining environments that I could think of four years ago when I plotted this book, and um, it so happened that uh, truth mirrors, <laughs> you know, fiction <laughs> as as it happened
0: last year Mm. and in many ways karuna is restricted in other ways you know she kind of switches school as you said her mother kind of keeps her quite close doesn't like her going out um you know and in many ways it kind of feels like karuna sees her pregnancy as something that she can uh, you know she she could go out and do by herself a place where she could have some kind of autonomy um from other parts of her life when it is quite restricted Uh, can you tell me a little bit about karuna
1: Oh, sure. So Karuna is my 16-year-old protagonist and her parents have separated. Her mother is Chinese, uh, from the Philippines originally, and she's an only child. So her mother is very overprotective of her to the point of almost suffocation and also quite abrasive, quite prickly when she speaks to Karuna because she was brought up in, in a very similar way and so Karuna feels very stifled in every way, you know, living in the flats. She has to go leave her old school and go to a, a local school. She doesn't quite fit in. So the only means of independence she has when her every move is watched, even when her mother is not around, because her mother works two jobs, mm. is uh, to to get with a young man and get herself knocked up. It's the only autonomy she has over her body. Mm.
0: And as you said, Karuna is, you know, her mum is Chinese, her dad is white, that Karuna's kind of biracial identity is an important thread in the book. um, And it kind of captures, you know, Karuna's pain of kind of feeling caught between cultures. Um, You know, I'm interested, I suppose, throughout the novel, you know, she kind of idolises her kind of absent white father, um, who she kind of seems to perceive as this like, symbol of a of a freer existence, perhaps. Um, but you kind of really tease out that experience of, you know, of Karina kind of resenting her mum a little bit and looking up to her dad um, and how the kind of racial dynamics play into that. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Oh, of course. So, yeah, she's a biracial kid and because her dad is largely absent... She, you're right, she idealizes him because he he not only symbolises freedom, he's given her a lot of freedom when she was younger. He's a mechanic, so he lets her play with his tools, he lets her help out as best as she can. He doesn't care if she gets dirty. Her mother, on the other hand... Uh, wants to bring up Karuna as a perfect young lady so that she'll have a good future and marry well. Her mother's business is quite different. Her mother runs her own business in one of the rooms of the house. She's a beautician. So (laughs) that's what Karuna's railing against, and that's why she identifies more with her dad. Additionally, Beth, a lot of the women who come to her mother as customers always are commenting on Karuna's physical appearance Mm -hmm. because... A lot of biracial children are exoticized in this way, not just now, but you know all through the decades um, and Karunas always praised for her white skin and her lion like eyes so she she doesn 't like that she can 't quite put words to it because she 's too young to realize that 's what 's happening she 's been objectified, so her dad seems to be someone who recognizes her as an independent person. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I think just speaking to that, you know, as you said, Karuna's mum is a beautician. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, in those kind of gendered notions of of control that we kind of see playing out. You know, um, her mum's always kind of worried about Karuna getting fat or worrying about what she should wear. Um, I'm interested, can you speak to those ideas a little bit more?
1: Oh, of course. Cool. So, you know, I've, I've been visiting schools and I've worked with young people uh, for about 15 years now, and in every culture, and and in you know through one and a half decades, I've seen this happening. It's just you know in one interview, the interviewer asked, "Is is Karuna's mum a bit of a tiger mother?" And I think that's a bit reductive. And I think it's a you know the term "tiger mother" is a, quite racist because mm-hmm. it's saying, "Oh, you know, Asian women force their kids into doing what they don't want," and it gives. Caucasian or mothers of a different culture, a free pass. Mm. When I go to school so often and I've seen mothers and daughters interact and I've seen some mothers who speak so kindly to their daughters and yet their daughters, um, they don't have high self-esteem and they have eating disorders because they subliminally take on the messages that their mothers are passing on. You have to be thin to be attractive. You have to look a certain way and you have to... um, have to be essentially perfect Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's it's not a cultural thing i think it's a it's a girlhood experience isn't
0: it yeah absolutely i mean i think the kind of (coughs) sorry i think the kind of um yeah the the relationship between karuna and her mum is you know the and the kind of concepts of motherhood is such a central um kind of question throughout this this book you know um Karuna, like Karuna's mum wants to keep her safe. And, you know, it's always kind of coming from this framing of um, of safety. But, you know, I suppose as it goes on, we kind of can see um, the ways in which kind of Karuna's mum controls her through keeping her money and, and, you know, later on in the book, kind of keeping her locked in the flat. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, their relationship and the kind of tension within it?
1: Sure. So their relationship sounds so stifling, but it's not entirely made up. You know, I, I grew up in a very similar circumstance. Girls should stay at home and keep out of mischief. Mm. And then uh, decades later, when I came to mentor students, a young Sudanese girl told me, oh, my mum my just locks me up in the flat. She thinks I'll be up to no good if she lets me run free she says I've got to stay at home look after the kids and do the housework, and that's how you make a good girl and what was so interesting was that her brother didn't get any of these restrictions Mm. so it was only her, it's a very gender thing and I saw it happening with my friends at school who weren't just Asian Australian who were Greek or Lebanese or you know their parents were in a different country and the only way to keep them safe from the Pernicious influences that they didn't understand was to keep them at home as much mm. as they could. That's where you could watch over them because mm. a lot of the parents were outworkers who were working at home, so you could literally watch over your child twenty-four hours a day. And that's what was happening, and that still is happening. Beth, when when I do Zoom, um, you know, school sessions last year when we're locked up, I saw a lot of young people in the exact same scenario.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Alice Pong all about her brand new novel called 100 Days. Alice, I'd love if you could, um, I suppose, speak to the kind of cultural concept um, of 100 Days and, and what it means.
2: Oh,
1: so, so it, the 100 Days refers to, firstly, Karuna's locked up by her mum for 100 days, but it's also a thing in cultures where if you're pregnant, there's a period called confinement. In some cultures, it's 30 days, in some it's 60, and in some it's 100. And the the concept of this uh, is quite good. And, you know, back 2,000 years ago, it was scientifically based. So in ancient China, for a newborn mother who'd just given birth, she's lost a lot of blood. So she should stay inside. She shouldn't bathe because of the um, you know the river water could be dirty and give her diseases and she is waited on hand and foot either by her mother or her in-law just so whenever the baby needs feeding they bring her the baby and other times she just has to rest <laughs> and she gets fed she gets um, all this food made for her now over the centuries and in this modern day confinement has come to mean something quite different and it's it, um, meant something quite literal for Karuna. She's confined in this 14th floor flat and she can't do anything and she can't go outside and her mum won't let her take showers in the heat of an Australian summer. You can see how that's reversed on itself. Like, that's unhygienic and that's stifling. And to be honest, it's dangerous. There have been cases of... South Asian mothers who were confined for at least a month in bed. They weren't even allowed to get out of bed. They would uh, pee in a a little pot. And then when they got up, they had aneurysms and died. Mm -hmm. So so it's about dangerous cultural practices. And it's quite sad. It's not a, um, you know, it's not beating on any culture. It's what happens when you... Take something that used to be scientifically founded and then you wrap it up in superstition and then you enforce it on someone.
0: yeah it's a it's a very it 's a very tricky one because of, of course there' are so there's so much merit to i think the ideas around it, but then obviously it has to be um, changed depending on the context um, oh
1: it does yeah <laughs> um
0: alice I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about you know the narrator of the book is obviously Karuna um she writes the book to her you know what is her unborn child for most of the book. Can you tell me a little bit about um your decision to to write the book in that way?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was so liberating, Beth, because when I wrote my first book 15 years ago, uh, that was liberating too because it was my first book and I didn't know what the audience would be like. Mm. But to be honest, in a part of my mind, I knew that my first readers would be predominantly Anglo-Australian readers. As as you know, they go to writers festivals, Mm. they buy the books, teachers pick up books for school, you know, to, to show students. And so... Um, there was a lot of cultural explaining I did just, just to make the book make sense. And now we've come so far that I can actually write a book from a Asian Australian mother you know, to her unborn Asian child and bypass this idea of audience completely. So it, it's just a book from a mother to a child. I, I didn't think too much about, <laughs> you know, should I be explaining what the look is? Should I be explaining these concepts no you know we've got the internet people can figure
0: these things out yeah absolutely um and I also wanted to ask you know there are kind of these uh quite small references but kind of weaved throughout the book um that kind of touch on different fairy tales from you know the princess with the pea and the mattress to Rumpelstiltskin can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to weave these stories into Karuna's world
1: Oh, yeah, of course, just because that's all the literature she's she's, uh, you know, exposed to. Besides the trashy novels she gets mm-hmm. from the library and besides um, books that she gets from a free books pile. So I did that deliberately because she's still quite innocent. She's still, you know, uh, into burgeoning adulthood. She's still very much a child. And in many respects, she's um, more adult than a lot of, you know, adults in their 20s and and mid-twenties who have been to university. So I wanted to have that paradox and that contradiction. And also the original fairy tales before Disney got to them in, in the early 80s, they were still quite grim, and they were still quite dark. So I still read the endings where, you know, the maiden's dance on broken glass and the little mermaid didn't make it out alive. <laughs> so that was why I put that in. Mm,
0: it reminds me of um, one of the lines in the book uh, where it talks about when children have children. Um, and, of course, it influences the references that you have. And, yeah, it really comes through then Um yeah. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon, Alice. I've absolutely loved reading this book. Um, I think there's a really beautiful line that kind of, I think, sums up a lot of what we've been talking about when Miss Osman kind of talks about the relationship between Karina and her mum, talking to Karina when she says, your mother may not um, know how to love you the best, but she love you the most. Um, and it really feels like that kind of encapsulates a lot of what um, we've been speaking about and their, um, their relationship. But yeah, Alice, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to read your work. Work as always.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Beth. Thank you.
0: Alice Pung there speaking about her new novel. It is called 100 Days and it's out now through Black Ink. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I'm very excited to have my next guest joining me on the line. How much time and energy does it take to fall in love or rinse modelled wings? Does Alexandra Kollontai represent a spectre of utopian promises or merely a blank space for fantasies of desire and revolution? Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt is Elena Gomez's second full-length poetry collection. Uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's always a pleasure to chat to you about your poetry. Um, Would you be happy to start with the reading?
2: Uh, Yeah, I've got a couple of pages here. All right. This is from near the beginning. Um, It's sort of a long poem in a few parts, so it doesn't have a title. Rinse your mottled wings in this thin liquid. Reassign mud to a flat oaky board. Thick ripples in skin, kept smooth by protected classifications, the rock where it ends, tremolo or some audio sundered, an intermittent security, enter the terms you wish for, your daily loop on parallel lines, your imagined transcendence, sometimes you forge yourself, you're fat with the sound or the beauty of words on the lines and curves how they look, how they feel in your mouth. You forget how they also work and what, the, what was the point of this all again? What does aesthetics even do these days? I slid my tail across the pine surface, watched a carbonated organ emerge from the robust orifice. I lapped at the fluids alongside it. Could have made a calico rug, instead chewed the corner of the manuscript, fondled the broom nearby. All this time, to retoast toast the spelt bread, its afterlife, the carbon. Who else was witness to the lit field trying to turn out the stomach contents of this slayed beast? Oh, so.
0: Thank you so and much. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's Eleanor Gomez reading from Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt. Um, I'd love to kind of, I suppose, know first and foremost, I've, I've read that this work originated... Um, as part of your practice-based research for your um, Masters of Fine Art and Poetry. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like?
2: Yes. Um, yes, so that's right. I wrote the book kind of in that space. Um, the experience was really interesting because I had, during that time, also been contracted to do my first book of poetry, which was more of a collection, um, and so I was sort of in two different headspaces. but this one came out of, I guess, an interest in Marxist feminism. Um, I was reading a lot about kind of the politics around domestic and care labor, um, and the sort of feminist interventions into Marxism. And I suppose, um, my, my interest in it was as a poet, um, and through poetry as a way of kind of thinking through those, uh, tensions and, um, you know, I sort of got got attached to this um, figure of Alexandra Kollontai because she was writing a lot about imagining how desire and, like, sexual relationships would kind of function under communism. Um, and so I guess, yeah, the experience was one that was filled with lots of research and lots of thinking and lots of writing, but it sort of, yeah, it was really, really... Um, Really fun to do. I had some great supervisors and other students and poets um, that I read and learnt alongside. Um, and yeah, I think I just sort of... It solidified for me that poetry as a practice is one that is inter- intertwined with, like, thinking about the world and thinking about the possibilities of the world that we live in, mm. I guess.
0: Yeah. I'm interested when you kind of... Um writing kind of within the academic world and also maybe away from it or or speaking to it, kind of does that change the way that you think or or the way that you write?
2: Um, in some ways, yes, in the sense that I become a lot more conscious I think of the genealogies that I'm interested in and citation practices um and sort of knowing where my poetry and thinking is kind of coming from in a lineage Mm. sense um and yeah sometimes I think yeah the the trick can be to sort of work out when to turn certain aspects off in order to write um I think that is true whether I'm writing poetry or uh or theory or like uh, essay kind of writing as well but yeah it's a bit of attention Mm. I think
0: and, and you mentioned before um, Body of Work, um, which came out in 2018, I believe. Um, I'm interested in how you see your kind of writing practice or your poetics kind of going from that um, that collection to, to this one. I know you had some kind of chapbooks in between, um, but yeah, maybe how your writing has changed or evolved or your ideas of, of the way you write have changed over that time. Uh, yeah,
2: they've changed a lot. Um I think the a lot of the poems in body of work were sort of my earlier poems when I had first started writing and I think the main part of it was kind of confidence in the idea that I could I could take my poetry a bit more seriously because I think in my early poems I was maybe a bit more playful in certain ways and sort of not necessarily thinking about it in a serious way and I was looking at how how I could play with language in particular kind of modes, and I think uh, I think my, my style has changed in that I've probably got a bit more kind of an idea of what I want my poems to do. Um, I'm still interested in play and exploring the kind of edges of language, but I think I do it in a more kind of, I think I've, I've learned to follow my instincts of what I'm interested in more rather than playing for play's sake, which I think is an important part of poetry as well, but yeah mm. I think that has changed a
0: bit When you say you're um, interested in what your poems do, do you mean how they're how they're read by your readers or what do you mean
2: by that? Um, yeah, partly how they're read but I guess in a, in a sense for me I think I, it always comes back to my favourite poets I think, mm. I I always think about how I feel reading reading my favourite poets and thinking how can I do what they're doing, which sounds very derivative, but I think it's an important part of my practice, um, thinking what have poems done for me and what are the poems that impact me and then thinking about whether my poems are doing something similar, which I'll never know for sure, but in a sense you have to kind of think about what the readers are experiencing and at the same time shutting it out slightly just to get the writing out, if that
0: makes sense. Absolutely. And I think not derivative at all. I think it's um, part of so many people's writing practice. I think it's, you know, it's quite essential. Um, I'd love to talk about this collection. You know, there's the book's kind of broken into four sections. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the ideas behind this book? You know, there's this kind of question of, um, you know, what the body needs as it resists its own oppression and kind of the consequences on the body when we do resist. Can you kind of speak to that idea and, and some of the ideas that you, you had going into writing this?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think there's there's a really great observation and definitely definitely what I was exploring in this book. Um, for me, I think it started out with these big questions about revolution and about. Um, Marxist feminism, but then as I wrote and as I thought and as I read around things, I found that actually what I was interested in was these tiny kind of experiences of lived life, and also this sense of how time can feel at different points. So, like I wanted, I wanted there to be a sense of the past and also of the future. Through this kind of really specific experiences, so I, I guess in in thinking through the body, I came to it via food and via clothes and via textures um, and animals and just kind of looking at looking at uh, I think the way the way the body figures in these spaces as as something that we live in, but also that as something that things are done to um, by the world. So I think. Um, yeah, it was, it's. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I just want to say, just you can like anyone read the book, and hopefully they can see that as well. But um, I think that's what I was trying to do, um, and yeah, in thinking about things as a specific experience, it always came back to this sense of the body.
0: Mm. And you know, the the kind of second half of the book is, um, a, as you kind of touched on, is you know a, a poetic response to or like a working through of the of the life of Alexandra Kohentai, Um can you tell me a little bit about uh, about her and kind of how you first got interested in, in her work?
2: Yes. So I used to sort of run many years ago a little feminist reading group and it was really fun and everyone kind of, we'd pick a sort of theme each group meeting and someone would select readings around that. And I think we were looking at anarchist and communist feminist um, in the early 20th century and one of the readings was an Alexandra Kollontai piece about I think marriage and we um, was sort of talking about bourgeois property relationships and romantic relationships and the sort of trying to kind of conceptualize uh, patterns of or relationships of ownership um, out from the material and into the personal and I just kind of it was, it was resonating a lot of the time and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and found that she was a Bolshevik feminist in Russia and kind of quite important in the early revolutionary years um, was the head of the women's department there under Lenin for a little while. And um, when she, yeah, so in in early Soviet Russia, like abortions were legal, divorce was legal. There were all these kind of amazing feminist kind of um, developments that occurred um, before things got worse and eventually were taken away, but there was this moment of this utopian kind of idea of that, and you know she was she was often not taken seriously by other Bolsheviks, and Lenin um, famously had kind of she had said there's like a story, and this is not necessarily fully how it went down but the story goes that she said sex should be like drinking a glass of water and then Lenin said not everyone wants to drink out of a dirty glass um which is not yeah that's just the story how it goes but like the idea was that she was kind of interested in this idea of sexual freedom as part of communist uh society and I I thought it was just yeah really interesting and that was probably my starting point with her and then also comes back to the body and desire and all those things
0: yeah you really seem to kind of um, layer these modes of kind of historical forms of of resistance with these more um, I suppose um, discrete or kind of like finite um, moments of kind of newer technological kind of modes of communication and like idea sharing does that uh, does that resonate with what you were trying to do?
2: yeah I think so. um yeah I feel like it's it's always the thinking through which I think it yeah it doesn't really um it doesn't really become clear what I'm necessarily saying until I've kind of got it out there and then I can see okay yeah that that's how it is but mm. um the end result isn't always necessarily how I pictured it going in either mm.
0: I feel like uh the kind of earlier part of the work feels a little bit um unhopeful, but then it kind of shifts a little bit towards the end can you i suppose speak to that a little bit and how you see um your ideas of of kind of hope playing out through this work?
2: oh that's so really i like that observation I don't think i i don't think I intentionally had that in there i guess um, in the first part I was sort of uh thinking through sort of revolutionary modes and the sort of lifestyle those kind of modes can um, encompass, and which is probably where that kind of not feeling as hopeful comes. But I think, yeah, definitely, definitely the idea of utopia and the project of utopianism is interesting to me for communism because I think what we always have to think is that what, what we're demanding and what we ask for and what we imagine is not necessarily something that has ever been the case before. So it requires this sense of hope, mm. and communism is hope. I think, like it, you know, you have to be able to both hold the messy, painful, dangerous parts of society alongside an idea that things can get better and things and things that we can imagine as better are possible. Mm. So yeah, maybe that's where that came from. That as in in the writing of it, I sort of became more. More attached to that idea
0: of a hopeful future. Mm. Um, Eleanor, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been—it's um, always a pleasure to, to read your work um, and to chat to you. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Uh, that was Eleanor Gomez there speaking about her new poetry, "Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt." It is out now through Puncher and Watman. Hey, it's almost time for me to get on out of here. Do want to say a big thanks to my guests who joined me this afternoon? Alice Pong, to talk about her new novel, 100 Days, and Eleanor Gomez to speak about her poetry, Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt. I'll be back with you next week. Till then, keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth A.Q. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glasshouse, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.